This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to another episode of The Stateless Man. It's that time of the week again, and I'm so pleased to be back live. The website is thestatelessman.com, and the sponsor is amtgs.com. That's AMTG Solutions for your web development and digital media needs. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. That's uh, international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And as I keep saying each week, the guests I'm able to line up just get better all the time, and I'm so pleased with the the set this week. Uh, we have Mikhail Sebastian, a man who is uh, stateless in terms of the definition that he has no nationality. He is uh, born in a nation which does not exist, that is the Soviet Union, and uh, is the actual location where he was born in Azerbaijan, by Azerbaijan. I'm not sure how you pronounce it exactly, but they will not grant him citizenship, so he is uh, he is without nationality. And he spent the last year in American Samoa, st- stranded there basically uh, with no legal capacity to leave. And uh, we're just lining him up right now. But after that, we're going to be exploring in detail the results of a new Mercatus Center uh, ranking of, of freedom across the states within the United States. And this is just loaded with detail. I'll say, too, it's just someone who looks to, at different places to go to within the, the United States I just look right at these rankings and see what is the tax burden? How does this one rank? Because the disparity across different jurisdictions is still great enough that it really makes a difference. And so, yeah, this is a very sophisticated ranking from the Mercatus Center. And you can see that posted on the, uh, the Stigless Man page. If you just scroll down a little bit, and I'm going to post another direct link below the show link, uh, which is up right now. Additionally, North Dakota came out number one and knocking New Hampshire off the top. And I'm going to have my uh, favorite legislator or ex-legislator from North Dakota. We got to know each other uh, by, by my work as a reporter covering the National Debt Relief Amendment and restoringfreedom.org. And, yeah, his name is Curtis Olofsson, and he will be on later on in the show. And finally, this is really, I guess, Another initiative that is really unraveling, you could say, the frontiers of freedom or the paradigm that we live in, these these paradigms of jurisdiction, of allegiance, of nationality, this is the seasteading movement. And the particular project within seasteading is Blue Seed. Now, if you're not yet familiar with seasteading, that is basically the building of communities outside of all current jurisdictions on the ocean. And I'm not exactly one who's inclined to want to live on the ocean, but they are coming up with a very sophisticated way to do it. That's what the Seasteading Institute's work is all about. And Blue Seed, I've just posted a note, they have put out their first test ship today. You can see that on the Stateless Man Facebook page. And I'm going to have, he's got a, he's got a really funny name, Dan DeSaskalu, I think it is, he, the chief information officer from uh, Blue Seed will be on ex- to discuss this one further. Now, 
we have uh, got Mikhail on, so I'm really pleased to see that. I know he had to take time off work to come and speak with us, and I was trying to speak with him all last year for many months. We kind of went back and forth through email, and he shared lots of information about his story, and I've actually submitted an article which references him to the Future of Freedom Foundation, which is still in editing, but I hope it will be out in the next day or two. Uh, Mikhail, you know, it, it has been a long time, and I'm really pleased you managed to get back to the United States after all this time. Thanks for uh, coming on The Stabilist Man. I guess we'd, we'd, we'd not be able to get him. I'm, I'm, I need to confirm this, uh, but we will keep trying. So yeah, I'll, I'll just give people a little bit of an explanation of, of Mikhail's story and why it's so important. Mikhail, like I said, he was born in a former Soviet state, which fell with the with the end of the Soviet Union. And he was also, at that time, he was obviously very young, caught up in civil war in that region. And his family fled as refugees, I think, to Turkey or Armenia. Regardless, he found himself without a nationality or passport. And when you get into that situation, there are actually, there are non-profits or independent agencies that will give what they call world passports or passports for people who are without nationality. But they have such extremely limited travel freedoms that they're better than nothing, but not a, not a lot better than nothing. And so he had managed to get into the U.S., I think it's on refugee status, but they had actually rejected him but didn't know where to send him back to. And so if you don't have a nation, where are they going to deport you to, which is all obviously a, a waste of time. Uh, just let him get on with his life. And so he was living in the United States, and because of such limited travel freedom, he'd just gone to enjoy his holidays throughout the United States jurisdiction. So he'd been to Puerto Rico, to Guam, all around the States, and he went to American Samoa, another territory within the United States. Now, there's a little bit of a uh, maybe dis- dispute or contention that between American Samoa and just Samoa or Western Samoa, you can you can just get a fare, and I don't think they require any passport. It's um, it's one of the open border parts of the United States. Now, somehow I think someone in U.S. Customs and Border Protection got wind of this. The Michaela been to America to Western Samoa, and they did not allow him back on the plane to get to the United States that he had quote self-deported, and that started this saga of more than a full year down in American Samoa. He went for a planned, I think, three-day vacation, just a long weekend. And he just had a few changes of clothes and his computer, just his backpack, basically. And yet he had to live with no legal standing at all for a full year, more than a year. And that's when he was emailing me. I saw an article posted by him. And me running the Stateless Man show and coming into contact with him has opened up a new world to me or a new uh, what exists that I was just unaware of. And these people who have no nationality, it just shows you the brunt or the the destructiveness of discriminatory treatment to people based upon whether they're part of some sort of government union known as citizenship. And people who, with, through no fault of their own, do not have that, they s- struggle. Now, we're going to work through the break to get Mikhail on. But I'll expand upon this story because it is so important. And I'm, I'm working on an article. I've submitted an article on this matter, which I can explain as well. But uh, if you want to call in to discuss this idea of statelessness or living without a nationality, you can do it 1-888-741-7472. 
Otherwise, stay with the Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. Your website is a major doorway to reach new clients. A dynamic web presence will generate you more leads and business. AMTG Solutions offers premium web design and digital media services for today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Visit our website at amtgs.com or email Tony at info at amtgs.com and let's get the ball rolling. Welcome back to the Stateless Man, Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders, and we've still still not been able to get hold of uh, Mikhail, so I'm just going to finish up the story and then explain the new rankings, which have got a ton of material to uh, elaborate on, so that's great. I mean, I, I just really work, like the work of the Mikhail Center, so I'm glad to expand upon that. Now, with Mikhail, the point that his existence or presence is, is that he's the example to people who want to impose discriminatory treatment against non-citizens. What about people who don't even have a citizenship? How how does that make that person less important or valuable? And I think uh, he his presence, along with about 12 million other people on the planet who are in the stuck in the scenario, court commands us to think beyond citizenship or where someone happened to be when his mother gave birth. So I'm yeah I'm am, I am going to be posting an article with the Future of Freedom Foundation on that topic and the the title is at least the one that I've submitted is the end of the road for nativism because he is the end of the road if you believe in this philosophy of nativism you are supporting the kind of treatment that Mikhail has received and actually it gets much worse than Mikhail as I note in the article uh, people who are trying to uh, cross borders just to get to a freer life are dying in droves because they have to go to more isolated regions. And more take more dangerous routes because of the the impediments that people place in front of them. But I, I would like to get to this this uh, report though. So I've written about this one over the years in my reporting capacity, and I wrote an, an article about it for the Future of Freedom Foundation. And the key insight, as far as I'm concerned, and this is what I wrote about for FFF, is that migration affirms hunger for freedom. Now, how does a ranking of the states within the United States make that claim that migration affirms hunger for freedom. It does so because the authors of this report have analyzed the correlation between economic freedom or the comprehensive freedom as, as in, their, in their report and migration flows. And you can just see that the correlation is extremely tight. And I note this in, in my article, which I'll post on, on the Facebook page, that Nanny states like um, like New York and California, which are the bottom two, they are not exactly meccas for immigration. And New York, for example, between 2000 and 2009, lost 8.9% of its population. That's people voting with their feet right there. And when you've got a crazy uh, mayor in New York City like Bloomberg, I'm not I'm not surprised. More precisely, let me have a look. I did get some more data here. I will post that, but basically it's a, it's a clear correlation and it just shows that what I, what I call revealed preferences. So that's the term in economics. We can have stated preferences. People can vote and st- say what they want 
or they can reveal them through their own actions. And I say actions speak a hell of a lot louder than words. And people's actions are shown that they want greater freedom. They're going to move to the places that are freer. And that includes uh, within the United States where there is a very good test in this regard where they have open borders within the states. So, yeah, let me go to... Let me go to the actual free, the, the the final ranking, and I'll I'll list those out to you, uh, so you know where you might want to go if you're in the United States. So number one, North Dakota; two, South Dakota; three, Tennessee; four, New Hampshire; five, Oklahoma; six, Idaho; seven, Missouri; eight, Virginia; nine, Georgia; and ten, Utah. Now New Hampshire had been number one before, although. They've uh, refined the way they do these rankings, and New Hampshire has, has dropped, uh, North, while North Dakota has risen greatly. And I'll just say that if you compare places like North Dakota to, yeah, the bottom two of New York, California, and then you've got New Jersey in 48th, uh, it is a, a stark difference. So in many of these top states, simply don't have a sales tax, for example, or no state income tax, or both in the case of New, New Hampshire, whereas in California, New York, it is not that way at all. The the interesting thing too is that these these trends do move these the, the relative standings of the states do move over time. And one thing I've noticed too that there are other rankings out there. There's a state competitiveness ranking. There is a uh, or a similar economic freedom ranking from the Fraser Institute that ranks Canadian and U.S. provinces and states. And while there is there is some disparity, the worst performers always seem to come out worse. And that's to say that the, the between the the top and the middle, there's a little bit of um, give and take between the different indexes. But the worst ones, they just stand out in almost every regard. Now, people often ask, "Is does this, you could say, preferences towards the Republican or Democratic parties? Unfortunately, there is somewhat of a duopoly where two political party, sets of political parties and the members have basically cordoned off and created barriers to entry into the process to, to give them immense power. And... Actually, the key insight is party strongholds, such as California, New York, or Mississippi, the states that have the strongest uh, loyalty to one party that are kind of blindly faithful, they are the least free. The most free are the independent ones that don't, that swing or basically are non, not so loyal to a, a political party. I just think it's very interesting that is the case that New Hampshire, for example, they switch all the time. And they are just kind of like a, a diamond in the rough. But among all the New England states or the northeast of the United States, they are basically the only one with any relative freedom. The nearest one to them, I guess Delaware is number is number seventeen, but they're not they're not New England there. They're just up in that direction. Massachusetts comes in at thirtieth, so you can see it's a it's a, a challenge. They do so much better, and I think a lot of it is to do with their more independent approach when it comes to political activity. And we're going to have, uh, when we have Jason Sorens on to explain this ranking, he'll also discuss the Free State Project. He founded this idea back in the uh, early 2000s. I think he first wrote about it in 2001, and it came to fruition, I think, in 2003, so about 10 years old. And they chose New Hampshire for that reason, for the fact that it was a, a small state that already had a respect for freedom, so people could cluster there and protect or expand freedom there. And not only that, I mean, New Hampshire has the the, the state saying, I'm not sure whether you've a state motto, if you, dri- if you drive in, you see on the signs, live free or die. 
and I just appreciate that sentiment. People I know up in Massachusetts want to look down upon. New Hampshire is less refined, perhaps, as, as them, but I'll say you can have your supposed refinement. I'll take the no sales tax and no income tax any day, and uh, you can keep your you can keep yours on the other side and remain Taxachusetts as people know it in in that realm of the world. I will also note that in my own travels, I have lived in Massachusetts, and then Louisiana, and then uh, North Carolina, where I'm broadcasting from right now, and the the rankings have switched around a little bit, but basically, at least in past rankings. I was going from one state, from a freer state, from a less free to more free state all the way. So I was matching the correlation that I referred to and that has been identified in this list. Now, if you want to examine what exactly this means in terms of, you know, what exactly is economic freedom or freedom as defined by the Mercator Center, because people have criticized it, you can call in uh, 1-888-741-7472 and we'll ex- explore this more. I'm really pleased to be having Jason Sorens up next. Like I said, he is a great role model in the in the liberty movement and, and a revolutionary thinker too because the founder of the Free State Project, which has become a, a great success. So stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, your online radio resource about life abroad. Welcome back to the Stateless Man Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders, and I have the pleasure of host of having as a guest uh, Jason Sirens, the co-author of the report which I've just been explaining. And he is also, yeah, the co-founder or founder, intellectual founder of the Free State Project. Now, if you want to check out this ranking, it simply is freedom in the five zero or fifty states dot org, and I'm posting it on the Stateless Man page right now. And that has just a a, a like a huge amount of uh, analysis that goes into it. And I know that the authors at the Mercatus Center. Have been refining that that index to make it, you could say better reflect a a weighting which people will relate to or value and can appreciate. So, uh, Jason, welcome to the Stateless Man. Well, thanks for having me on. Right. Well, let's just ex- explain to people Ed, before we digest into the results. What do you mean by quote freedom? And you have a breakdown here of different attributes. So, do you want to explain the broader term and then the different components that go into this uh, this finding? Right. So freedom for us means the right to dispose of your life, liberty, and property as you see fit, so long as you don't interfere with others' rights to do the same. Um, So you can call that the law of equal freedom, the law of maximum freedom, uh, whatever you like. Um, But basically the idea is that uh, we want to measure the extent to which governments take away that freedom, the extent to which governments uh, take away your life or your liberty or your property um, without mm. your permission, without your consent. Um, and we've tried to do that in three different areas. Fiscal policy, which has to do with taxation, government spending, government debt, and things like that. Uh, regulatory policy, which has mostly to do with uh, government regulations on business. And finally, personal freedoms, uh, which has to do with uh, government 
uh, regulations on lifestyle choices and the like. Mm. Right. And yeah, so the results have changed since last time. Do you want to explain the refinements to the index since last publication, which I think was in 2011? That's right. So what we did this time is we wanted to um, to actually measure freedom as objectively and scientifically as possible. And so for the first time ever, uh, we've created a freedom index that, that tries to do this. We've actually consulted the peer-reviewed literature on um, the consequences of these different policies in our index for mm. people's well-being. So each policy is weighted by the value of that freedom to those who enjoy it. Uh, so, for instance, um, well, let's just take uh, minimum wage laws. Uh, so we calculate um, how minimum wage laws uh, reduce, um, you know, employers' incomes, net incomes, and willingness to hire other workers, and that becomes the weight for that variable in the index. And so once we add up all the variables using these weights, we can get a, uh, a summary measure of freedom for each of the 50 states. Right. And I'll, I will say that this, uh, <laughs> this this ranking has received some criticism. I'm not sure. Did you see the article placed on, on the Slate magazine, Libertarian Fallacies? Yes, I did. Do you want to have a response uh, to... Yeah, some of the critiques that, that he said in there, and I mean, there are many you could you could explain, but I think it reflects often a misunderstanding of what you're measuring. But do you want to just respond briefly, if you would like to, to the the concerns that that author raised? Sure, uh, and we we tend to get um, criticisms often uh, from you know, more from the left, I would say, um, especially right, because right. yeah, states that that tend to do well on our index are often more conservative, not always, um, but they're often uh, uh, fairly conservative states. And the reason mm. for that, by the way, um, is yeah. that conservative, conservative states tend to do much better than uh, liberal states on economic policy. They tend to have lower taxes, lower regulations on business. Uh, again, not always true, but as a generalization, that tends to be true. And then on personal freedoms, it basically, it cancels out. Um, conservative it's kind of, a, states, kind of a wash on that one? Yeah, it's kind of a wash, basically. Uh, conservative states are better on things like guns and homeschooling um, mm. and tobacco. Um, huh. <laughs> yeah. And liberal states are often better on drugs and uh, um, same-sex partnerships. But uh, so. it's, it ends up being kind of a wash. There are a few states that do well on, on personal freedom because they have both the conservative and the liberal sides of, of personal freedom. Uh, as it happens, New Hampshire really sticks out there as a state that does well on both economic and personal freedom, even though they don't end up number one on uh, overall freedom. Right. So, um, so we get that those responses from the left. And, um, you know, I, I would just say that... Um, you know, for the most part, I think they're confusing freedom for something like quality of life. And sure, right. um, you know, maybe you don't want to live in in North Dakota, which ends up our number one state. <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not planning on moving there, but we're, we're going to have a guy on later to discuss exactly what's going on in North Dakota, so he can make the case yeah. for himself. I mean, but that's not the same. Saying that North Dakota has a harsh climate and a lot of people don't want to live there is not the same as saying it's not free. I mean, it, mm. it could well be the, the most free, and, and we think it is, once you look at uh, the public policies in that state. Um, so, yeah, w 
the, the other side of this is that the proof is really in the pudding. When we look at the statistical relationship between freedom on all three dimensions, controlling for climate and cost of living and things like that, we find that um, states with greater freedom have uh, more in-migration. So people are moving from less free states to more free states. Um, and in fact, the Dakotas are actually attracting people. In North Dakota, in part, that's because of the uh, the fossil fuel boom. But South Dakota doesn't have that uh, that uh, big uh, hydro fracking boom, and yet it is also growing. Um, mm. Meanwhile, New York has been losing more people than any other state. It's lost about 10 percent of its population since 2000 to other states. That's just so such an enormous number of people. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just say I was mentioning uh, b- before the break that. The fact is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, these, these basically demonstrated preferences or revealed preferences through migration, they actually carry, they actually carry such weight because people, if you, if you're willing to up and move, you really care about it. Voting, you can just, you know, it's, it's relatively convenient. And so mm-hmm. I just take, I just take that outcome seriously that, that find that correlation, even though it is only a correlation. I think there's a there is a causality there, which is, is hard to prove or disprove, but it seems very strong. And one of the one of the critiques of the index was that you noted high levels of debt. To to say that that is a a problem with the index, I thought was so strange that I guess you're you're you're, you're sort of struggling to find problems if you want to mock the fact that government debt was included. <laughs> yeah, I think so. His his point was something about how um, Texas is growing rapidly, so. Not surprising that local governments would accumulate more debt. Well, that would be a fair criticism if we were measuring debt on a per capita basis or maybe just an absolute basis. We're actually measuring debt as a percentage of income, though. So mm. it doesn't. It's not clear to me why a rapidly growing state should be dedicating a greater share of its economy to government. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, I think in, it was a rather fact- hasty and ill-considered take. Yeah, and in fact, I will just say that as, as a population grows, there's actually there's a certain amount of economies of scale, and it should be the exact opposite. That infrastructure infrastructure can be spread over more people, so it should not be the case that a high population leads to a greater percentage of your uh, state in terms of de- indebtedness, and that indebtedness tells people that in the future this is going to come back to you in, t- in the form of taxes. So get ready. Mm-hmm. So so no wonder people yeah. might want to leave. Okay, yeah, those are good points. Yeah, and do you want to just t- we've only got a, a minute to the break, but do you want to just touch upon briefly why New Hampshire dropped from first and, and just basically has dropped in the rankings of, of late? Right, so what happened there is that um, our data are based on the beginning of 2011. Uh, that's the most right. recent data we have because, you know, we rely on the Census Bureau, for instance, to give us information on state and local government sure. uh, finances. So, um, so what happened was that New Hampshire had four years of um, total democratic domination in the legislature, oh. the governor's office, unified uh, democratic governance. Well, Jason, j- yeah, just hold that, that thought. We do have to go to the break, and we're going to come back to this. Uh, this is the Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. This is the Stateless Man broadcasting on Overseas Radio Network, and I'm pleased to have Jason Sirens, the 
uh, co-author of the Freedom in the 50 States report from the McCabe Center. That's freedominthe50states.org, and it has a ranking of all the U.S. states if you're looking to uh, see just how your state is doing, if you're in the U.S., or if you're looking to move to the United States, where you might like to consider going. And as Jason was explaining, the economic freedom, or the, the freedom that they measure is closely correlated with migration flows. So people know where freedom is and they are going there. And I wrote an article about this when the last time the last time the ranking came out and the title was Migration Affirms Hunger for Freedom. That's on the Stateless Man Facebook page uh, published with the Future of Freedom Foundation. Now, before the break, he was just uh, Jason was just partway through explaining why New Hampshire has dropped off the number one spot. And there were a combination of things. One is that they've, they've adjusted the, the, the calculation process, but also you just said there have been a few things occurring over the past four years. Jason, if you, you don't mind picking up the conversation at that point. Yeah. So even with the, the new methodology, New Hampshire would have been number one in 2007. But, really? Uh, the legis- yeah. The legislature that was in power from 2007 to 2011 did some good things. They legalized uh, same-sex uh, civil unions and later marriage. Uh, but mm. they also passed um, a smoking ban, and they raised taxes and government spending and government debt. And so all of those things drove New Hampshire down from number one to number four by 2011. Now, what happened after that... Slow, slow down. A, a, smoke, a smoking ban in New Hampshire so you can... Live not so free, so you don't die. Is that is that the new motto? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what the uh, progressives would like to change it. To. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Yeah, actually, I I remember that for some reason, I'm not sure who actually was re- responsible for this, but they managed to he or she or a group managed to get the the motto taken down from the signs, but people re- got them re-erected. Do you know that backstory? Yeah, this was a, a while ago, a few years ago, uh, the state had decided to take down some of the welcome signs that said, live free or die, and put something else up, and uh, there was a bit of an outcry, and so they put back up the live free or die uh, motto. Uh, but, you know, there was also another irony that someone tried to cover up the live free or die logo on his uh, license plate on, on the car, and that was deemed illegal. You're not allowed to cover up that. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Live free or else. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You will, you will represent this state. But, um, so, so what, so they banned cigarettes or like, smoking in, in what, in bars, I guess? Or what, what, yeah, generally? restaurants and bars. Right. You are allowed to and, have cigar bars, but other bars are, it's banned. I see, I see. Now, I want, let's just sort of round up. I mean, what would you say are the kind of, kind of key insights that have maybe surprised you? As, the, as one of the researchers that you didn't anticipate coming out of this? Um, well, one of the things uh, we were surprised at, I mean, some, some of the rankings were surprising, but one of the, mm. I guess, biggest um, big-picture things that, that really struck home is how important um, regulatory policy is to economic growth. Um, mm. it's, it's about twice as important as fiscal policy, taxes and spending and, and things like that. So what really matters if you want to grow your state's economy is going to be lightening the load on business, making it easy to start a business, loosening up uh, labor regulations, health insurance regulations, reforming your uh, court system so that uh, you don't Mm. have these massive uh, multi-million dollar judgments um, against companies and companies don't have to worry about that as much. Um, So... Those are uh, those are some some important reforms that uh, that states can make, and 
Indiana is a good example of this. It's our number one state on regulatory policy, and it's the only Rust Belt state in the country. You think about uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, okay. Illinois, Indiana. Uh, Indiana is the only one that is actually attracting people. Uh, mm. So, if you if you really want to grow your economy uh, and your and your otherwise suffering, uh, look at lightening your regulatory burden. Yeah, and actually, I'm I'm so glad that there are groups like the Institute for Justice who are highlighting just the protectionist element of this regulatory policy that it's not about protecting consumers. They don't have any control over this. There's huge regulatory capture. So, for example, in Louisiana, you can't even be a florist without a, a strict license, which I think requires some study and multiple exams. And I'm going, does anyone actually take this seriously, that the florists aren't just trying to, uh, to get your money? And it, the most yeah. notorious one, perhaps, was when the, there were some monks in a, in a monastery who were building caskets, as in coffins, and they were doing so without licenses. And one might say, you know, who exactly is in danger from a casket? The person's already dead. You know, I, I just, it gets to <laughs> such ridiculous levels. I, I just can't, I don't know if people take themselves seriously when they pass these laws. And the amazing thing, too, is they had to go to the courts. The legislators wouldn't overturn it. It just shows how embedded many of these lobbies are in the political process. But... Yeah. I wanted to, we've only got a, a few minutes to play with. I wanted to get on to the Free State Project, which I know everyone probably asks you about because it's maybe a little bit of your claim to fame at this point, but it has been more than 10 years since your, your original idea for the Free State Project. And even I think critics, I, I read an article on Mother Jones saying that it's been a quote, partial success. And so even yeah. the critics are, are sort of complimenting you on this. Oh yeah. Um, and you know what happened after uh, after the period that the, the uh, Freedom in the Fifty States study closed is that um, the 2011-2012 legislature may have been the most libertarian state legislature in the nation in a hundred years. I mean they they cut the budget by eighteen percent. They cut the um, the university system's budget by forty eight percent. They they. Uh, um, Trying yeah. to decriminalize medical marijuana and legalize medical marijuana, the Democratic governor vetoed it, and, oh, and they weren't man. able to override the veto. But uh, yeah, they they did a lot to um, to improve the state score, uh, to improve the environment for freedom in the state. And a lot of free staters have gotten into the legislature. They've written laws, have gotten those laws enacted. Um, so yeah, we are starting to see the real fruits of this effort and. Uh, our events have just gotten bigger. They're expecting about 1,500 people to show up to the uh, Porcupine Freedom Festival in June. Um, so it's exciting. It's exciting to see the, the free state idea come to fruition. It really is, and it's, it's kind of come to a point of maturity now, where, as you, as you know, yeah, the, the, the two yearly events, the Liberty Forum, which I think is in March or February, and then the mm -hmm. summer event, the Pork, Porcupine Freedom Festival or Pork Fest. Uh, they've both, they've just grown and they've become kind of like a staple to many people in that, in that part of the world. And I've only been to the Liberty Forum, but I'll just say, if you can get to one of these events, really do it because it's just a different demographic of people who are really, you could say, independent thinkers. And the one thing that comes out of the, out of it too is the optimism that people are really making change happen. They're not waiting around. They're starting their own homeschooling networks or their own, uh, local, uh, uh, agricultural production networks, whatever it may be, to basically become self-sufficient, 
they're not going to wait around. And at the same time, like you say, they are having political, political success too. There are also media outlets in, in New Hampshire that have uh, started since mm-hmm. the Free State Project. So just a lot of good is, is coming from that. And people can check it out. It's freestateproject.org. I'm a big fan of it. And I will admit, I'll put it on the air, that I did sign up, that if there were 20,000 people, I would go. That was about eight years ago. And we've got to about, I think, 11,000 now. But I'll just say that I I think it's a a wonderful idea and that it it is starting to come to fruition. What is the sort of the next frontier? Do you have any more ideas that you've been writing on that you think, what do you say to people who are looking to expatriate perhaps or move to somewhere else? Have you been looking into actually people leaving the United States altogether? I haven't uh, looked at that very much uh, myself. Um, one other rare area of research that I have, though, is secession, people trying to withdraw from their country without leaving home. And mm. uh, we've certainly seen a lot of that internationally. We've seen um, you know, efforts to hold referendums on independence in Catalonia and Scotland. And not in right. any case is, is secession being motivated by uh, concerns that we would recognize as pro-liberty concerns. But I think there is a, a movement around the world to bring government closer to home, to make it more responsive to the average person. And we mm. can certainly use a little of that in in this country, in the United States. I'm not, you know, I'm not coming out here and saying, you know, I want to break up the United States. I'm just saying that this idea of decentralization, of getting power local, is uh, yeah. Yeah. is very important. Don't hold back. Don't hold back with us, Jason. You know we're, we're uncomfortable <laughs> with you saying that on the station. But I will, I will say that when I was uh, living in Ecuador, I met a guy there from Los Angeles, and he was saying that I think the cost of opening up a bar back home for him was something like a hundred thousand dollars in terms of the licensing. But and where he was in Quito, I don't know whether this was downtown. I I can't remember the part, but basically they didn't need any license. They could serve liquor. Just not with no barrier to entry, just like a normal restaurant. And he just basically, even though he preferred to live back in the U.S., he just couldn't uh, foresee how he could start his own business back there. So, again, that is the regulatory uh, burden coming to the fore. Now, what about? So, are you confident then that that the the free state New Hampshire will make another challenge for number one next time? I think so. Uh, it's a very good chance they could uh, take back number one. Ryan. And well, I'll, I'll say, Jason, it is a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you have been, I, I think, a, a leading a role model and thinker. And uh, I really appreciate the work of the Mercatus Center. So uh, best of luck with that work, and I'll, I'll follow the next time it comes out. All right. Thanks very much, Fergus. Right on. So, folks, we're going to have next up is uh, Curtis Olufsen. He's from North Dakota, the state that came out number one. And he is a, a friend of mine, and we came into contact through me writing about uh, the proposed amendments convention and a, a process for amending the federal federal government's con- um, constitution in the United States. Now, I don't usually sort of spend a lot of time on this. Mainly, I'm, I'm interested in basically what is going on in North Dakota and why it's of interest. But I will say that one of the one of the reasons why I'm interested in the the debt relief amendment, which he promotes, is that it basically changes the paradigm of thinking when it comes to government. That they're saying that. We don't want. We want to basically amend this constitution directly, rather than wait around for uh, the federal government to do it themselves. So we'll, we'll examine that more. From China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network. This is the Stateless Man, sponsored by AMTG Solutions. It's amtgs.com, and we're pursuing liberty. Beyond Borders, International Living, 
financial independence and personal sovereignty. And after the, in the previous segment, I had on one of my, um, just a person that I look up to actually as a, as a, a thinker who actually has both a backbone and brings about revolutionary ideas. And the idea that he proposed was the Free State Project, which is now more than 10 years old and has been a great success. Uh, Jason Sorens uh, is also the co-author of the Freedom in the 50 States Index or Ranking, and you can see that at freedominthe50states.org. And this year's results saw a, a boost for North Dakota from, I think, uh, what was it, number four last time? Five, fifth last time, and now it is number one overall. I've never been to North Dakota. It's one of those states, the few that I've not not yet got to, and it's a little bit isolated. I guess it's a smaller population, so you don't get to very often uh, just in sort of randomly kind of purposely go there. But I also have a, a good friend from North Dakota who, whom I came to know through the National Debt Relief Amendment and the push for, within the United States, an Article 5 Amendments Convention, which if you're not familiar with it, it just means that right now the U.S. has a constitution, but as many people know, the people in the federal government don't really obey it. And even if they, even if they did obey it, they wouldn't stop them from expanding their indebtedness to just astronomical levels. The level of debt in the United States is just completely out of control. And it, if, including unfunded liabilities, a lot of, a lot of this debt is hidden, uh, due to trick accounting or misleading accounting. It is beyond $200 trillion, including unfunded liabilities such as Medicaid, I mean, Medicare, I'm sorry, and, uh, social security payments. Now, so, but, Basically, so yeah, when I was working as a reporter, I got to know Curtis Olofsson, and he is from North Dakota, a former state legislator there, and his wife is Icelandic, and I'm not sure, I think he is of Icelandic descent as well, but he is my go-to man when it comes to this state, and I wanted to have him on to explain what has brought about, you could say, the rise of freedom in his home, so uh, Curtis, former state senator, Welcome to the Stateless Man. Hey, it's good to be with you, my friend, Burgess. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great, and it brings back memories, actually. Just some bizarre times back in Louisiana, working in the, working, covering the legislate, legislature as a reporter, and I just, I remember that time, I'm thinking, maybe you came down twice, but one time you came down and you just got a, a bit of a beating from some of the legislators down there. And that was really unsavory. So just a, a lot of bizarre things happened during my time in Louisiana, and that was just one memory that I had. Yes, I'll never forget the uh, Senate. Com- I, and you're right, I was down there twice, and the uh, House committee hearing was all very pleasant and very respectful. But uh, right. when we got into the uh, Senate committee hearing, there were a couple of uh, members of the Senate committee that were uh, – taking uh, great umbrage at the thought that Louisiana might have to do with a bit less federal money. And uh, so they made quite a big issue out of it and uh, became quite uh, disrespectful and uh, combative. And I just uh, kept my composure and uh, and answered their questions in a respectful way. And uh, that, uh, that was helpful in the end result of the committee. Um, at first, they, uh, they de- defeated the... Uh, National Debt Relief Amendment resolution in the committee, but the committee later reconsidered their actions, and I think a lot of legislators were uh, disappointed and disgusted by the behavior of a couple of those committee members, so they later 
uh, approved the resolution and sent it to the floor for it passed by a wide margin with bipartisan support. Yeah, that was that was funny too because I, I remember one of the ladies was going, "I move a motion to make this the to rename this the hypocrisy amendment." And I just <laughs> right. I thought that I thought that was funny, and if people don't know the 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 reason why this well. I mean, we're going to, have to go we'll back up and explain the, what, what we're talking about a little bit. But in the United States, there is, a, it's a federal system. And that means that you have some control, uh, within the states and some of the federal government according to the written constitution. But many people know that the power of the printing press and debt from the federal level through the Federal Reserve means that, and also the power of taxation that basically the federal government will use its tax money and its its borrowed money to basically control uh, state activities or control local governments, and that that's really a very um, concerning trend. It basically makes the local governments and state governments, I'm not sure whether you want to call subsidiaries or just basically people carrying out the will of the federal government. And it reminds me of the saying, "Beggars can't be choosers," because if you're begging for money, well, the people who's who are giving out the money are gonna tell you how to use that money and and what uh, Curtis has been promoting through the website restoringfreedom.org which I've written about many times now is basically stop begging to Congress uh, change the actual written constitution directly and normally I don't, I don't really discuss legislative or uh, you could say such political initiatives but I will say that this one is, is close to me and it also, I think it, it's important because it, it calls upon people to change their thinking. And the reason, the reason is that in the more than 200 years of the existence of the United States in its present form, there are two ways to amend the United States Constitution and still only one, people have only used one method and that is to have all amendments go through the Congress. This, that mean, the other method is for the state legislatures to propose one and hold an amendments convention and do it themselves without waiting around. And it's almost like there's like a lack of confidence or belief in oneself to bring this about. Do you want to comment on that, uh, Curtis, about why it has just not happened in two, more than 200 years? Yeah, well, I think it might be helpful to your listeners to give a bit more explanation about what the National Debt Relief Amendment effort is actually all about. And uh, you're right, under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, there are two methods by which amendments can be proposed and ratified to the Constitution. Number one is if two-thirds of both chambers of Congress propose an amendment, uh, they can send that amendment proposal to the states, at which time three-fourths of the states need to ratify it in order for it to become part of the Constitution. That is the method by which all 27 current amendments have been added. But there is a second within Article 5, wisely placed there by our founding fathers, and that is the state-initiated process to propose and ratify amendments. If uh, two-thirds of the states, currently 34 of the states, propose the same amendment, Congress is compelled to issue a call for a time and a place for an Article 5 Amendments Convention. Right. Uh, Curtis, I'm going to cut you off there. We can explain this after the break, but we have to have to take, take a brief pause. This is the Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. The 
This is The Stateless Man uh, with your host, Fergus Hodgson, broadcasting live from Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm speaking with Curtis Olofsson of North Dakota, a former state senator there, and also the uh, prime spokesman for the National Debt Relief Amendment. And he was just explaining the fact that there are two methods for amending the United States Constitution, and one of them goes through the federal Congress, and one of them is through the state legislatures. And he has been at the forefront of a push to have a, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh Placing a cap on debt. Now, I don't want to uh, spend too much time on that because we, like, I really wanted to have him on to discuss what has been happening in North Dakota and why it is perhaps the, the freest state in the union. But just briefly, Curtis, if you don't mind, someone was even posting on the Stateless Man Facebook page about how this guy is from North Dakota. Let me bring up his comment. Uh, this guy, Luke, a man who, yeah, posting publicly from Fargo or lives in Fargo, North Dakota. And he said that he was very concerned about the uh, threat of a runaway convention. And he posted a, a, a quote or a link from the John Birch Society. Those guys, they're everywhere. And he said it's a very dangerous idea. And because there are no, quote, there are no mechanisms in place to prevent a runaway convention. In other words, a complete restructuring of the Constitution. Would you like to respond to that? Uh, yeah, sure. respond to that comment. Yeah, I'm very familiar with the arguments of the John Birch Society. They are old and tired arguments that have no basis in fact or in historical perspective. And just briefly, he is wrong. There are multiple layers of protection in the Article 5 process, starting with this. Before an Article 5 Amendments Convention could ever be convened, 34 states have to request the same amendment. That's a powerful mass of political force that has built up right there. Uh, and after that, the state legislatures choose their own delegates. If they act improperly, they can be recalled and replaced. Court action can be, could and would be filed to stop an Article 5 Amendments Convention that is acting improperly. Uh, the delegates themselves would have to agree to a radical, dangerous, or extremist amendment. Uh, this, the uh, Congress can refuse, has an obligation and a responsibility to refuse to send to the states for ratification any amendment proposed in a convention which exceeds the scope and call uh, specified in the applications. And finally, at the end of the process, three-fourths of the states, 38 states, must ratify the um, proposed amendment. And unless and until 38 states ratify a proposed amendment, the Constitution is untouched and nothing has changed it changes so there are yeah. multiple layers of protection right it's absolutely that's my, wrong about that yeah that's my concern to curtis that the the problem is that the, it's just basically untrue and i think groups like john birch i mean i actually don't mind a lot of the work that they do is that they've kind of staked a like almost like a, a foundation or a plank that this is our issue and we will never budge and i think they're getting a little bit desperate when they start making things up like that there's no mechanism to prevent a runaway convention. When, of course, like you said, just said, there are many mechanisms. So it's just blatantly untrue. That's, I mean, I support that work. And if you want to check out the note on that, just go to restoringfreedom.org. I link to it in my uh, weekly e-newsletter. And actually, I'll post one of my commentaries in favor of this up on the Stateless Man page uh, below the uh, show link for today. Now, so we'll, let, let's clarify what's going on in North Dakota, though. Were you born in North Dakota? What, what's, your, what's your background in the state? Absolutely. 
I was born in North Dakota, and uh, my grandparents, not great-grandparents, but grandparents were pioneer immigrants in the 1880s from Iceland. So I'm the third generation here in North Dakota, still operating from the uh, homestead quarter section of land that my grandparents uh, settled on in 1883. That is just great. And when did North Dakota become a part of the Union? In 1889. Well, so they even beat, they even went till before it was just, it was just a frontier. What was it, what was the land considered at that point? Just, uh, how do they define it? Well, it was, uh, for the most part, a rolling treeless prairie. There were some, some wooded sections, but, uh, North Dakota at that time was basically grassland with some, uh, some parcels of land that were interspersed in that, that were wooded. And, uh, that's one of the reasons my grandparents settled where they did. There, there was, uh, wood available, uh, not too far away, but, and that was, of course, an essential, uh, yeah, uh, to get through the winter for life. And, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So. But yeah. North Dakota is having a bit of a uh, renaissance, perhaps. What has been going on in the last decade or so? Well, North Dakota has uh, experienced a tremendous economic boom over the last decade, and a lot of people uh, assume that is all because of oil, but it's not. There are many different reasons why North Dakota has experienced this huge economic boom, and let me, let me just mm. run through some of those. Of sure, course, there sure. is the oil and, ga- oil and gas industry, but we've, we've also got a large coal industry. We've got coal-fired electrical generating plants. We have a significant hydroelectric industry. We have wind, uh, big wind energy industry in North Dakota. We export a lot of electricity. Now, we can argue over the merits of wind energy or not uh, all day long, but uh, also sure. our, our ag industry is very strong. We have uh, very high-dollar, high-value crops like sugar beets and potatoes, which play a significant role in our ag industry, but we also are uh, one of the uh, top wheat-producing states in the uh, nation, and our our livestock industry has been strong. We have a a lot of biofuels that are produced in the state. But then Mm. let's move into some other areas. Uh, North Dakota has uh, experienced a significant increase in manufacturing exports. Uh, We've increased over the last uh, six or eight years, we've increased our manufacturing exports by a factor of three or four times. And uh, a lot of a lot of uh, small line manufacturers are coming to North Dakota and setting up shop because they appreciate our workforce, which brings me to one of the most <laughs> yeah. important factors in the success of North Dakota, which is hardly ever, if ever, mentioned in the national media, our mm. people. We have a very industrious group of people in North Dakota. Our, our citizens are very hardworking. They are very honest. They show up for work. They do a day's work. And, uh, and and our people are a significant part of the reason for the success that we are experiencing experiencing in this state. Right. Well, you you know, uh, I, I one of the listeners contacted me recently. Just he was kind of at at odds with life and looking to quit university because he thought he was wasting time. And he said, you know, Fergus, I think I'm just going to go to North Dakota and get a work get work there. I haven't graduated from college, but I'm sure there's laboring work available, so I can at least think a bit more about life. What would you say to someone about, in, in terms of just moving to North Dakota and assuming there'll be work there waiting for them? Well, if you have any skills and you want to work, certainly there's work waiting for you, for you here. Uh, I would caution people who are interested in doing that, if you are going to uh, set your sights on moving to the uh, 
western part of North Dakota where the oil boom is ongoing. Uh, yes. Don't worry about getting a job. Worry about getting housing. Get yourself some housing lined up first. Then worry about getting the job because the job is easy to get. The housing is difficult. In the eastern part of the state, that's not not near as much of a challenge. Uh, there is uh, housing much more readily available in the eastern part of the state, and still there's uh, there's job openings uh, all over the state. And uh, for anyone who wants to work, there's certainly uh, jobs available. Uh, I myself have been advertising for several months for uh, for yeah. an employee on on my ranch. And uh, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> you, what kind uh, of employee are you looking for? Well, I'm uh, looking for a uh, farm and ranch employee who has experience with working with cattle in my uh, other life, as I call it. I'm a registered cattle breeder, so I need someone with some uh, cattle experience. And I advertise and, and was able to hire one person, but I'm looking for another. And, uh, and right. it's, it's just it's just difficult to find uh, quality people because they are so much in demand by uh, many different industries that uh, you know people who are qualified and uh, and have some uh, work ethic. And and uh, some experience are, are certainly much in demand here in North Dakota. I have to cut that off there. I'm sorry. We, we, we need to go to the next um, the, the break at the bottom yeah. of the hour. But it's been a pleasure to speak with you. This is uh, former state senator uh, Curtis Olson, and he's the national spokesman for the National Debt Relief Amendment at RestoringFreedom.org. So thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thank you, Fergus. Good to talk to you. That's, it was my pleasure. Now, we have just got uh, another incredible guest lined up next. I'm actually going to be exploring seasteading and uh, the Blue Seed Project, which is a a manifestation of the seasteading initiative. Uh, We also had a story on the page today about the first test ship going out on the the sea. So stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, your online radio resource about life abroad. Welcome back to the Stateless Man, uh, pursuing liberty beyond borders. And we had a yeah, great segment. It sounds like I get the sense there's plenty of action going on in North Dakota, even though you didn't necessarily think of it uh, at first uh, thought. Released a story this morning, which has just got plenty of attention, and I quite enjoyed it actually. If you didn't, if you read it, I posted an image saying that the first blue seed seasteading test run set sail today, and, I, and there was a be- beautiful uh, ship there and lots of you know, bright colors, and I'll just quote, Concluding a year and a half of preparations, the company, this is Blue Seed, has launched this morning its first ship, Blue Seed One, after securing the remainder of its required funding, $18 million for an undisclosed, from an undisclosed Arab, invest, Arab investor. And what else can I add, add to that? Uh, the ship is being stationed 12 nautical miles off the coast of Half Moon Bay. Now, this got 15 likes and 15 shares, so plenty of people were enjoying it. The only problem is that was April Falls. I can't even believe that I did it. You would not expect that from Fergus Hodgson. But, yeah, so I, I can't claim credit for the creativity. Uh, the, the release came from the chief information officer, uh, Dan Descalescu. I don't know much about his background. He's got an accent which suggests he's from Europe somewhere. But he posted it, and I thought it was a brilliant little April 1st prank, and people bought it hook, line, and sinker. It's been all over the place. So kudos to that. So 
Uh, Dan, how would one pronounce your name, actually? And, so, and thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Ferg. Thanks for having me. My last name is pronounced Daskalescu, but I'll take any variations thereof. Daskalescu, and do you mind sharing? I mean, are you one of these people who wants to live on the ocean? Yes, I'm uh, an ambassador for a movement called the Seasteading, and uh, April Fools aside, Seasteading is a very serious mission. Definitely. It's the only, it's the only way out of uh, the current state of uh, lack of evolution and competition among governments. Yeah, this is so strange to me why uh, government government officials don't compete with each other. Because I see migrants as customers. You should be working to get them to come rather than trying to keep them out. You should be trying to attract them. And Bluestead is saying, well, look, we'll do it and we'll build it on the ocean. And people were going to – even if even if it's on the ocean, we can still do a better job than these uh, government officials. And the proposal, which is just – it's very exciting because it's, it's due to come to fruition in just over a year's time. Uh, in 2014, and it would be for a ship, a, a permanent cruise ship off the coast of California, about half an hour away from the um, from the coastline. Now, do you want to just expand upon what this idea is, and then I can start sort of tightening up on the details. Do you want to expand upon what what I just shared there? Sure. We all agree that governments should compete for citizens. The problem is they don't because um, the barrier of entry in the government market space is very, very high. You have to win a revolution or win an election or um, overthrow uh, the government or something of that nature. Mm. And uh, very few entities can do that. On the other hand, the barrier of entry in, say, uh, the app, the mobile app market is very low, and uh, there is plenty of competition there. Mm. What Seasteading wants to do is to lower the barrier of entry in the government marketplace radically, allowing uh, much smaller governments to compete for citizens. And the only place where this can be done is outside the jurisdiction of current governments, Mm. and that is on the ocean. Is there a plan to have Seasteading in the air as well? I actually wrote... um, an essay on the future of that, and if you look at the physics, there are some interesting ways of having very large spheres float in the air if you make the air inside them slightly hotter than the air outside. Right. But uh, the materials for that aren't there just yet. The energy, I imagine the energy to maintain something like that would be quite difficult. That's not a problem, but no? the biggest problem is uh, the um, the resistance to shear forces and portion of uh, the materials I have to build the sphere from. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, too, you'd be very vulnerable to the weather if you were hanging out in the air. But, I mean, you're vulnerable every, everywhere to some degree. But I just, I just think you're, you're right. They don't, uh, for whatever reason, I don't think people in government have really realized this so much that they really are in competition and should see constituencies like customers that they want to appeal to. Basically, by providing a lower price, a lower taxation, and better quality services, you know, higher quality rule of law, or whatever it may be. Now, they and they don't do it. Now, one of the reasons that I I believe this is the case is that people outside are simply disenfranchised; that they can't vote. They're not part of the process, and therefore, uh, their their opinion is not taken as as seriously. And also, there's maybe just a, a tribalist instinct that people are afraid of people from other parts of the world, which is really unfortunate. And one of the, the problems we address all the time on the show of basically letting go of that trap and embracing people who may look or sound different from you, 
but have got a lot to offer and, and who you can uh, you know enjoy life with. So, what w- with with the seasteading project that is going ahead with Blue Seed, and this is just blueseed.co or .co off the coast of California. Are you still on track for the 2014 opening? We are, as long as we raise the amount of funding that was mentioned in our press release. So the figure of 18 million is actually real. That's uh, what we need to raise because we have um, 9 million committed mm. from venture debt investor. As long as we raise uh, the remainder of 18 million, we will be scheduled to launch uh, around the Q2 next year. We should actually have a capacity of uh, 1,000 people, and it would host uh, an entire startup ecosystem of uh, startup entrepreneurs, talent, service providers, and um, investors, attorneys, marketers, accountants, everything that um, a thriving community needs to succeed. You know, I... I, In the pricing, actually, I know the the most basic unit, as far as I remember, is about $1,200 per month, right? Correct. Yeah, so that's very realistic. And does that include what does that what what would that what will that include? That will be a shared room for uh, probably two or three people, so it would be a price per person. Sure. That includes uh, a co-working desk, which in San Francisco starts at five hundred dollars per person per month. Hmm. So you get a shared room plus uh, a co-working space for twelve hundred. It's pretty competitive with uh, Palo Alto and San Francisco. So basically, yeah, you're just, it's like the cost of living in one of the cities, but you're not. And I, what about people like me who are not U.S. citizens? You'd then be not, not be subject to any taxation as well, right? I mean, other than just paying for your rent, that would be a taxation. Blue City itself will not charge any taxes, but everybody is required to pay uh, the proper tax they are due to their government. If you're American, as you implied, you have to pay taxation anywhere you live. Mm. If uh, you are a citizen of a different country, you have to abide by the rules of that country. As for startups, most of them will have to incorporate in Delaware because uh, investors demand so. Sure. But uh, as long as they are um, fully respecting the law, they can intelligently structure their uh, income uh, with to come to Bahamas, which is the flag of the ship, or mm. to the States or to their home country. So the ship, you say, will be incorporated in Bahamas... But operating outside of Bahamas, uh, the ship has to fly the flag of a state because that is mandated by international maritime law. Okay, and a state with um, the best benefits package for us in terms of jurisdiction, in terms of cost uh, registration, is the Bahamas. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. Well, this is we are discussing Blue Sea. That's uh, BlueSea.co. If you want to check out their website. And I also put a spoof story, but has that has some truth within it on the Stateless Man Facebook page. If you have questions about this, if you wanna, you're thinking you wanna go and live on the sea, you can call in. It's one eight 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 seven four one seven four seven two. You can also email me ferg at thestatelessman.com. I'll say that I'm excited about this idea and the proposal, which would be the stationing of a ship half an hour off shore. And we're gonna we're gonna have to examine this after the break, though. So, this is the Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network.
You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, the station to help you reach your dream destination. Welcome back to The Stainless Man. This is uh, Fergus Hodgson broadcasting live from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm exploring the Blue Seed Seasteading Project, which is uh, slated to go into activity from 2014. And it, it would be just off the, off the coast of California by Palo Alto or part of the Silicon Valley uh, area or region. And we did get, when I first posted this on the Stateless Man page, someone did write up a question saying, what about dealing with Customs and Border Patrol or just entry? Wouldn't that make the commuting between there and Palo Alto complicated? And we've got the Chief Information Officer... Uh, Dan Descalescu, uh from from Blue Seed, and he was just explaining during the break that he says it's it he doesn't see that as a major problem. Do you want to, do you want to expand upon that point you made to me as we we're chatting about this during the break? The reason I see this as um, a manageable problem is because the non-Americans on the ship are a constant quantity. Mm. The ship will have one thousand entrepreneurs, as I mentioned before. But what our studies uh, show is uh, somewhat surprising that uh, 25% of these are Americans, even though they don't have uh, any visa issues. Therefore, we ask them, what are the motivations? Why yeah, they want- that is a good question. What is the motivation? The motivation, number one, was not about visas. It was um, the following, to live in an awesome startup and technology-oriented space. Mm. That's what drives them, which makes us resilient to things like uh, legislation changing. Let's say there would be a visa for startups approved. We'd be happy for that to happen. We can move the ship only one mile. From <laughs> <the world. laughs> that would be great. Would be great. Yeah, That's being great. in that space, not getting away from anything. Right. And to answer your question, these uh, 750 non-Americans would uh, go through customs as uh, everybody does for the first time or maybe a few times. But the officers there will quickly learn who these gentlemen are. And they are um, software developers or um, businessmen or entrepreneurs. And, and they are the very same people going in and out all the time. So uh, in a short time, this commute will become a formality for the borders protection and customs office. Right. And let me just think. I was I was saying, too, well, we actually examined the idea of seasteading about a year ago with Max Borders, I think he was doing research for the Seasteading Institute, and he said he described living on the sea as a bit like a, a, a kind of like an, a tax. And he said that as the burden, the taxation burden on land gets higher and higher, at some point it gets higher than the than the, so the, the burden that people feel from living on the ocean. Now, uh, you yeah, you describe it as living in a, in a village. I guess I mean, most people don't actually go running or do a lot of outdoors anyway. But I mean, let's hear it. Why, why is that not a problem? Because p- personally, I I think I don't, I kind of like living on land. I, I like living on land too. I actually lived on uh, houseboats for uh, three days in a row during a festival called Anephemeral. Yeah, the Sacramento River Delta, and it was a lot of fun. To my surprise. And the reason was uh, the people around, it's an entire community. As to why Blue Seal would feel like a village, that's primarily because uh, the ship, which we plan to launch, unlike the uh, test ship from this morning's prank, is uh, a real cruise ship. Mm. It's um, 600 feet or 200 meters long. 
It has a capacity of about 1,400 people, on which will host only 1,200 to have some extra room. And it has all the amenities you find on uh, cruise ships. And these are usually better than you would get uh, in your typical neighborhood. There are pools, saunas, um, a lot of um, restaurants, coffee shops, bars, and services such as... Uh, what, about, what about fresh produce? So just, you know, you can't exactly go gardening. This is very interesting, actually. There are many projects that uh, do gardening inside shipping containers. And we even partnered with one of them. But um, realistically, most of the produce will come from land because as an uh, independent state, if you want to put it that way, we will conduct trade. Mm. And what we offer is uh, innovation. And uh, what we want to acquire is a produce. I'm not going to grow cattle on the ship for sure. I see. I see. Well, you say you need another $18 million to bring this to fruition. I mean, how? what sort of strategies are you pursuing to generate investor interest? Because I'm not sure what kind of return. I guess maybe, maybe people see this as a high-risk option, but presumably you're going to turn a, a, a healthy profit given the presence of about a 1,000 rent-paying individuals. Lucy is undeniably high risk because it hasn't been uh, tried yet to host a 1,000 people at sea for uh, extended period of time. Right. On the other hand, uh, the model of uh, startup accelerators has been tried, and uh, some of them do produce returns on the order of uh, 10x in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we identified what the problems are with accelerators currently. And uh, mainly they are the community. So uh, it turns out that entrepreneurs need other entrepreneurs around them, preferably on a 24-7 basis, something that they can find university dorms. And that's what Blue Seed is marrying, university dorms with um, co-working spaces. <laughs> what about f- uh, are families allowed on this place? Sure, as long as uh, they can uh, earn an income and pay rent. There is a problem with small children because uh, allowing small children would uh, entail a lot of very different security measures on the ship. We probably will recommend that children be at least, um, I don't know, school age, probably 12. But uh, couples are welcome for sure. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of this idea, and I'm just waiting to see these pop, all up, pop up all over the place. That would be one, a wonderful advancement. At that point, you would know that when people are going to live on the sea, there's something wrong on the land. And I think that's that, to me, is one of the key messages coming out of this, that people are so, are so hungry to breathe a little bit of freedom, a bit of uh, innovation, that, yeah, they're willing to go to these lengths. And I also noted, too... Someone posted this on Twitter a while back that when all these successful, ambitious entrepreneurs have to go and live on the sea, you know you've got some problems with uh, immigration policies because why would you want to be turning these people away? I just, it just seems the most, like the most brainless idea ever to block these people from coming. But even so, you, as you, as you know, regardless of the immigration procedures, just forming a, a community of entrepreneurs is a, a wonderful idea, and even people who can live in the United States are going to want to live on the sea to be alongside them. So I'll, I'll just say, yeah, thank you uh, for coming on the show, and I, I look forward to following the progress of Blue Seed. Thank you for having me. Right. That's great. So, yeah, we this is The Stateless Man, and I've got just a few minutes to play with to give you a few updates on what is going on. Firstly, I want to note that today's feature article is from – a man whom I met by explore, examining a business school, a new business school startup called Exosphere in Santiago, Chile. 
and he has written, yeah, the feature article on the Saintless Man page, and his name is Stephen Yates. Many people, I'm sure, listening to this network and just expats, potential expats in general, I think, are looking at Chile. I'm one of them, and Chile does score high in terms of economic freedom. Both the Fraser Institute and the Heritage Foundation rank it in the top 10 in the world for economic freedom, and it's by far the freest within Latin America, at least according to those indexes. But as as people know, in this, you could say, expatriation realm, there are some snake, snake oil salesmen and people who want to trump up the benefits of a country and kind of conceal the not-so-pleasant side of things because they have a vested interest in you buying their product or buy, yeah, buying their real estate or moving to their area or whatever it may be. And I'm really pleased to have an independent source on this uh, Stephen Yates, he is a philosopher and he was a an adjunct uh, professor at a adjunct lecturer at a college in South Carolina. And the only thing that he's got really for sale is that he's an author and you might want to buy his books. Now, his book is, let me get this one up here, Four Cardinal Errors, Reasons for the Decline of the American Republic. He also wrote Civil Wrongs, What Went Wrong with Affirmative Action back in 1994. So he's been around as a writer uh, an observer for a, for a while now, and he has written the most in-depth article on the statelessman.com yet. It's really worth your time. So yeah, go to the statelessman.com. It's up the top, just titled "From Greenville to Santiago: Why I Left the United States for Chile." And this has just a lot of important content there. Firstly, he's saying, I guess let me let me just go through it uh, just just briefly while I've got a, a, a few a few minutes to do so. That he wants to know that. There really are problems in the United States that many people don't want to admit. He said, while many of these supposed economic experts trump this recovery, there are still almost 50 million people dependent on food stamps to to eat. And that's a, a still at a record, and that's not going anywhere anytime soon. And he, he said that he <clears throat> foresees, that, along with other, you could say, more maverick economists, which I happen to be sympathetic to, that basically... The outlook for the United States is actually very bad, that the indebtedness is only going to get worse. And rather than actually cut back on spending, that it's just going to create a, a higher tax burden over time. And that's really basically one of the reasons why the U.S. is in a stagnant situation, that it's already been plummeting in, in uh, freedom, and the tax burden is going to get heavier at the same time. So basically, he just he gives some observations about what is going on, what are the problems are in the, in the U.S. right now. And I, I wanted to get him on the show, but he just was—he was teaching today. He teaches at, I think it's the Universidad uh, de Chile Nacional or something like that in Santiago. But he's teaching—he's teaching today. But he, he points out the challenges in the United States, and then how this motivated him to move on to Chile. And he's been there for almost a year, and just his reflections upon what it, what what that has led to. And his key point is that. Chile is unlike the United States and Europe is not in decline, and construction abounds, and the cost of living is lower. There's a young population and beautiful scenery, and I I did put one caveat there. I put in a photo that I'd taken when I was in Santiago in 2010, and that there was quite a bit of smog around around Santiago at least. But in terms of the country as a whole, it's a very long, slim slim country with a lot to offer environmentally. 
And he goes along to say, yeah, there, there's great food, there's industry, peaceful, happy people, uh, you know, lots of opportunity. You know, you can live without a car. And, but there, at the same time, there are a lot of provisos that there's bureaucracy. You really need to learn Spanish. Uh, there's a lot for you to keep in mind and it's just not for everybody, particularly if you don't, if you don't learn Spanish. He just says that just might as well, you might as well stay home. Now, there's, there's too much for me to get to and we, we're nearing the end of the, end of the hour. So I'm going to have to wrap it up, but I'll just say, yeah, this is a worthwhile article for anyone who's looking to move to Chile. Check this one out and you can email me in for questions. I can forward them to him. So. Otherwise, I'll just say I'm really pleased to have done another show this week, and I'm, I'm, I thank thank people for their interest, particularly through the Sailor's Man Facebook page. Follow that one if you want to keep in touch. Otherwise, you know, I, I look forward to next week. Uh, get, stay in touch with the Stateless Man, and this is the On the Overseas Radio Network. China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This is the Overseas Radio Network. <laughs>